And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Terms and restrictions apply. The Athletic. The Phil Hay Show. Hello and welcome along. The Phil Hay Show is brought to you by The Athletic with the square ball. I'm Dan Moylan. Hiya. From The Athletic, here's Phil Hay. Hello. And Michael's here as well. Michael Normanson from the square ball. Hello. We now have a new Twitter account, which is very exciting. If you uh, want to reach us on Twitter, you can tweet at The Phil Hay Show. We'll be getting to some of your tweets in a bit, but first a reminder that you can subscribe to The Athletic right now for a special price of $3.99 a month for six months. That's 40% off the full price of a subscription. You get all the great analysis, the in-depth features from the very best football writers around, one of which we have on the podcast today, thankfully, and his name's on the show. And you also get ad-free versions of all these podcasts and every Athletic podcast. Sell it to me, Phil. Why should I subscribe? What's on there this week? Oh, there's, there's all sorts. Um, we will be having a look this weekend at a year since Ellen Road was was last full, quite a notable anniversary, that one. And in some ways a quick year, in some ways a, a very slow one. Uh, we've had a good look into um, Rafinha as well, his transfer fee over the summer and how that compares to those of, of other attacking players and some of the bigger signings um, that came into the Premier League essentially is. Is that the best deal any club has done this season or certainly in the last uh, summer window? And also a, a good look at Diego Llorente, who seems to be fit at last and who I thought had a, a very, very good game against Aston Villa despite the uh, despite the result. I'm quite interested in that. We'll be talking about some of those points as we go, in particular looking at the one year since we have been in Ellen Roads in just a bit. But if you want to subscribe to The Athletic, take advantage of that discount, theathletic.com forward slash leads pod. That's theathletic.com forward slash leads pod. And yes, the result, the Villa result. We are talking off the back of another defeat, but this one doesn't seem to hurt too much, although it, it was uh, frustrating. We did go into the Villa game thinking there was no reason why Leeds didn't win it, but win it, we didn't. There was a neat little edit of last week's podcast, um, which took out your comment of, I think Bielsa has Dean Smith's number. And I know Michael would be furious if I let that pass without without me mentioning it. Um, so I, hang on I'll, a second. Whoa, 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 whoa. I just need to interject and say, no, I actually asked you the question. I said, do you think Bielsa has Dean Smith's number? Because on the evidence of the games so far, you could argue that he does. I didn't say that was my hardened belief. I think a psychoanalyst would say that that was coming from a, a deep-seated belief that, that yes, he did. I did say at the time it was a, a bit of a small sample to go on and I wasn't entirely sure. But you know what? It, it was a good question because it had felt a little bit like that in the previous games, certainly the first game at Villa Park and, and in the two games in, in the Championship. Obviously, Leeds had the, the better of the, the results over the three matches, but I would say probably played better in them as well, maybe the exception of the first half of the, the very, very first meeting, that famous game around Christmas where Kamar Roof scored late on. But... It was a completely different game on Saturday to what we saw at Villa Park. And I think with hindsight, that's not a huge surprise. Villa tried to to fight fire with fire um, at home and got badly burned in the end. You know, they, they left too much space for Leeds to play in. They didn't put enough pressure on, on Cleek in the, the holding defensive midfield role. They were susceptible to counter-attacks and they left themselves open to them. 
on Saturday, there was a complete switch from Dean Smith. And he did say afterwards that he'd done that deliberately, you know, in, in part, according to him, because of the pitch, he, he didn't think it was going to give them much of a chance to play particularly fluently. But it must have been due as well to what he'd seen first time round and, and the way in which you, you'll have realised that if you open yourself up against Bielsa's leads, you're going to get stung and, and you're going to, going to get done. And they were really compact. They were defensively sound. They didn't take a huge number of risks. They got a pretty fortuitous goal early in the game. And from there on, Leeds didn't create um, a great deal. And I wouldn't disagree with Bielsa when he says that on the balance of play and, and given what went on, that Leeds would have been worth a point and, and perhaps if, if either side deserved to win the game, it, it would have been his team. And the numbers reflect that, but I don't think it's the same as saying that Leeds played well on Saturday because quite honestly, I, I don't think they did. And it was one of those real games under Bielsa that actually was not much of a spectacle and wasn't really worth watching. Do you think we actually learned anything? And I'll ask you both this. Do you think we actually learned anything from that Villa defeat or was it just a continuation of that problem that, Bielsa's teams occasionally when they come up against these sides that will defend deep and sit on the edge of their box just can't find a way through the way I see it is that it's a problem we've got to solve over summer is this that this has happened a few times this year happening in the Wolves game as well to an extent when they shut the game down that we did struggle to break through and maybe that's when you need better players both in your starting 11 and some options off the bench because you did look at what we had out there and there wasn't necessarily anything there to help to unlock them and I feel like if we make some more Rafinha type acquisitions not that's an easy thing to do obviously but across the summer then I think it's a problem we can solve next season I'm not overly concerned this year particularly given we were not at full strength in the first place in this game I think Rodrigo and Phillips would have made a difference in there as well so it's one of those that I'm happy to put down to a bit of bad luck because as much as they we maybe we didn't deserve to win neither did they it was a it was a draw all day was that game I would say well, their goal, the, the slip from Watkins and the ball falling nicely to El Ghazi was almost exactly what Bamford did uh, after two minutes, slipping on the edge of the box, shot turning into a cross and, and almost giving Rafinha a bit of a tap in at the back post. I think this, this takes us back over slightly old ground, which is to say that the midfield wasn't great on Saturday. And it's very hard to judge whether or not this is an endemic problem. I know we have seen it with Leeds before and I know it was an, an issue in the Championship, but you did find in the Championship that the way teams packed in and, and the sort of compact way in which they, they played, you know, more extreme really than, than what Villa did on Saturday, meant that the sort of difficulty was inevitable. There was there was no way of avoiding that. And you just had to rely on persistence and the, the odd little bit of brilliance to open things up and, and to get you a goal. Were it a full strength side on, on Saturday and, and had it been for the last few weeks, these games become a little bit easier to judge. But I think it takes us back again to the discussion about whether the depth in midfield and the range of choice there is good enough. And, and I don't think it quite is when injuries bite. And, you know, I, I, I look more and more at Matthias Cleek and I see a player who does seem to be flagging and doesn't seem to have that spark that was was there when he played so well prior to Christmas. You know, I'm thinking particularly of the game against Everton at, at Goodison Park. He and, he and Phillips were terrific that day and, and part of the reason why Leeds were able to get a good win against Everton. So when, you, when you're talking about first season back in the Premier League, you, you're looking for it to be steady and you're looking for it to be comfortable. And that's pretty much where we are. That's pretty much where, where Leeds are. But there have been enough pointers, I think, over the past five months or so, over the past 26 games, to tell the club and, and to drum it into the club that they have a lot a lot of good things to build on here. And they, they do have some pretty strong and steady foundations with Bielsa, but they need to start bringing 
the eighteen in general up to strength. You know, it, it's around the fringes where they need to trim, and it's it's not necessarily the starting eleven that needs to improve per se. It's across the board, and and it's the it's the depth that you have. And we also actually touched on that today. We were asking him about injuries, and we we're asking him about why there'd been so many at Leeds and why there seemed to be so many across the game. And and he said. Part of the issue for us is that Berardi and Forshaw have been much longer term than we expected, but also we've had injuries in the same positions, so a lot of centre-backs have been affected, which obviously disrupts the team in general. But he did say, and I thought it was quite interesting, he, he did say that the knock-on effect of that is that substitutions become difficult, you know, it becomes harder to influence a game with your bench because your bench doesn't have the sort of strength that it would have if you were talking about your strongest eleven. So again, I think they did the right thing by skipping January if there was nothing they particularly wanted to do. Um, in that that window, but when we get round to the summer, it seems fairly apparent to me where the business needs to be done. Just because you mentioned the name there, and I know it's something people constantly ask about, is there any news on Forshaw? I mean, he is theoretically still a midfielder that we own. I did ask specifically about him today because his name came up in in that answer about injuries, and it's difficult with Forshaw. You you don't want to ask about him constantly because the answer tends to be the same. You know, he, he isn't quite ready. Be also will kind of make positive noises about him and, and did again today. He said something along the lines of he's in a positive cycle, he's in a positive positive moment just now, but also qualified that by saying he, he, it, this needs to continue for a while yet and he isn't ready for the under-23s. And, and I think when you've been absent for 18 months, it's impossible for anybody to spin this as a natural run for a player who's had fitness problems. You know, this has clearly been a chronic and extremely difficult ailment for him to get over. And there's no doubt in my head that Bielsa would still like to use him and, and no doubt that he would see him as a as a member of his squad at, at full tilt and at full fitness. But when that's going to happen, nobody seems to be able to say. And, you know, I, I did ask specifically, how is Forshaw going to cope in getting back up to the levels of a Bielsa team and, and more to the point of Bielsa team in the Premier League. And Bielsa did say, you know, I can't answer that. You know, I can't really answer how difficult that's going to be for him because it's a process rather than an overnight flick of a switch. And he'll either get there or he won't. But to read between the lines of that, and given that we're into March now, I don't expect to see Forshaw play for the first team this season. I'd be surprised to see him play again, to be perfectly honest, just the way that this one's gone. It feels like, you know, reading on message boards and Twitter and stuff, it feels like there's a general acceptance that he's he's not coming back. I wouldn't like to say that without speaking to him and, and certainly nobody at the club has ever said to me, you know, if we're to cut to the chase, if we're talking about retirement or, or something like that, nobody's ever said that to me and, and nobody's intimated that that, that may, might be on his mind. I, I think there would be a serious question about whether or not he'll play for Leeds again. I think in part because the club are moving on from what they had in the Championship little, little by little. They will they will put money into the squad again in the summer. They, they will try to improve. It's very difficult to rely too heavily on a player who still doesn't have a projected time scale for returning. And, and added to that, you're talking about Forshaw coming back at a higher level of football. So he was injured in the Championship. It's the Premier League and it's, it's mid-table Premier League um, as it stands for Leeds at the moment. It is going to be hard. Um, in the wider, you know, wider picture of, of his career, I wouldn't want to say anything about that particularly. I wouldn't want to to speculate on it and, and only he would know. But you can't pretend that this length of time out is good for anybody or is a, a positive, you know, positive thing to, to say about your body. And if he doesn't play this season, by the time he does play again, you'll have been talking nigh on two years. And it's very, very unusual these days for players to be out for that length of time. Even with things like ACLs or the more severe injuries. You know, you saw that Berardi was 
in and out of surgery back, you know, in the space of kind of seven to, to eight months um, and, and is in the 23s due to play again for the end of this week, he played against Palace 45 minutes at the start of this week. With Forshaw, we, we just don't have an end date and, and there's never been a kind of specific end date. And I can only imagine how mentally difficult it must be for him because it is his career and it is his livelihood and he, and he will want to play. And I think it's not difficult to think back to that comment from Bielsa saying that as far as he was concerned, Forshaw was the best player um, in his first pre-season, the most impressive player. And it has just been injury after injury that stopped him finding his niche. Talking about the midfield as a whole there and returning to a phrase Michael used actually, it does feel like it's a problem uh, to be solved. It's kind of evolving into that, I would say. When you look at that midfield that played against Villa, you've got Click, who's the recognised midfielder, but either side of him, in front and behind, you've got Tyler Roberts and Stroik, and whether it's through age or quality or lack of Premier League experience, it doesn't it doesn't feel like a midfield that's necessarily um gonna dominate in the Premier League. Rafinha's obviously got the quality out wide as well. But what of, of Costa? Because it feels like he's got a point to prove now and he's not pulling up any trees. And um it'd be nice to see him improve. Is is he improving enough? Is he doing enough in the Premier League? How do you think he got on against Villa? I Expecting him to start because he played well enough against Southampton and the, the comments from Bielsa prior to the, the Villa game about Jack Harrison specifically, it would an admission that, it, you know, in, in his view, Harrison had been a bit flat and a bit quiet for a couple of games. I mean, if, if you draw together a list of players who are likely to be vulnerable or even slightly vulnerable in the summer, I think you would have Roberts on it and I think you would have Costa on it as well. And, you know, it, it, it is unusual for Bielsa to... And not dig players out, but I think to to challenge them in the way that he did with with Roberts. I think to say in in really explicit terms, you know, he, he has to demonstrate to me that he he plays because he deserves to, not because we've got injuries and we need somebody to to fill the gap. And you know that ha- has been how it's felt with Roberts, even though he's been he's made an impact off the bench. It's felt as if if you were talking about a deeper squad or a stronger squad, would he really be featuring? And I think at the moment the answer is. Probably not as as much as Bielsa likes him and and does seem to does seem to rate him. The difficulty for Costa against Villa was that against Southampton there was a lot of space in behind on the flanks. Southampton pressed high; they committed players forward. It played into the into Costa's hands and gave him the scenario that I think he's absolutely best in, which is when you've got gaps to attack and, and loads of space to break into on on the counter. That wasn't going to be the case against Villa, and it and it and it never was during the ninety minutes. It, it was you know it was a team who who played very deep, who kept really tight lines, who didn't leave a lot of space to to play in, and, and who actually were pretty effective at doubling up out wide and, and also stopping the deliveries coming in. It was it was hard for Leeds to link up at all with Bamford. They didn't lay on very much for him, and you know you always find that when Bamford isn't really in the game to any great extent or, or in a massively effective way the goals and, and the chances do tend to, to dry up slightly. I, I kind of feel with Costa that if this is going to be the start of a run of games for him, he's he's going to have to be impressive in them. I mean, Leeds have got the option to take Jack Harrison from Manchester City and my, my understanding of that is that it will happen. It's as, as good as done and it will be an £11 million deal and I, I feel having watched Harrison this season, I still think that's a really good deal. I, th- I think that's worth doing and, and good value at that price. Given that Leeds are, are trying to elevate themselves and, and will start replacing other people, I, I do think it is the likes of Roberts and Costa and potentially Berardi and, and others who are, are going to be vulnerable when the window comes round. And, and I don't think on Saturday anybody particularly shone, but I, I certainly couldn't say that Costa did. 
Yeah, your one to watch was uh, the wings, wasn't it? Will uh, Will Harrison make way for Costa? He did, and uh, we saw the end result, and the end result was a loss to Villa. Villa, were they any good? Because, I mean, for God's sake, they've gone on and lost to Sheffield United since, which I think in many ways compounded the frustration, do you think, Michael? It, it, the sense was that they weren't any good, and they got the noses in front, and then they were quite good at defending and shutting the game down and causing enough enough niggles in the game that meant we couldn't get any flow going. There was there was, seemed to be a lot of complaining going on, I mean, partly a from us, it must be said as well, with Lorenzo going down and rolling around for 10 seconds or so before before he pulled to his feet. But it just felt like the game became very scrappy and I think that suited them down to the ground, in truth, whereas we, we need a more open, flowing game to try and get a result in something like this. Lorenzo's looking all right, isn't he, Phil? Yeah, I, the thing that stood out for me, I thought defensively he was very good and, and he seemed to be a, a bit of a magnet for the, the clearances and the long balls that Villa were playing. He, time and again, it seemed to fall at his feet and he was... He was really confident um, bringing possession forward. But I liked the range of his passing. I liked the disguise balls, one into Roberts that gave him a chance in the first half. A couple out to the right wing, which got through Villa's lines and, and opened things up. It was kind of penetrative and it was it was searching. And it needed to be because the midfield in front of him weren't really doing that. And, you you know, you were speaking about the, the midfield. And I think more and more, I, the way I look at it is that Bielsa talks regularly about needing two players for each position and that's the maximum he really wants and and that gives him the, the kind of squad size that he's looking for. I just feel that in midfield, you've got effectively one player for each position and then when it comes to covering, you've got players who are either having to shift out of position or out of their natural position in order to fit in or players who are either out of form or not necessarily looking like they're they're up to it at this level, and that I think that seems to be the prevailing view amongst everybody, not just us but supporters and, and other other pundits as well. That if if Leeds find a way to pep things up in those positions in that kind of midfield triangle between Phillips, Cleek, and Rodrigo, if you were at full strength, if there is more range of choice there, then I do think they'll become a different team again. I think they'll become a stronger team again, and I think that will go some way to knocking out the inconsistency that is definitely there in the results. I mean, I, I wouldn't be critical at all of this team or Bielsa this season. I think he, again, is getting the maximum out of the, the group of players who are there. But the next step will be to kind of stop this one win, one loss, one win, one loss, or, you know, back and forward, back and forward, as it as it has been all season. That If, if you're looking to progress, that's the thing that will take you from a kind of mid-table position up to the border of um, of European qualification. Yeah, a mid-table it is. Everything looking fairly comfortable at the minute. I know we're still sat on uh, 35 points, but it's quite a gap to down there. Um, I don't think any nerves are creeping back in, are there? One thing I will say... Tough run of games coming up. Yeah, well, <laughs> one thing I will say is it looks almost certainly like we're going to get Norwich back next season because they're 10 points clear at the top of the championship with one of Brentford, Watford and Swansea likely to secure the second automatic spot. I looked at Bar that, Barnsley. Well, I looked at that table last night and uh, it gave me slight palpitations. There's, there's sort of just flashbacks to three teams jostling over one automatic promotion spot. And I thought, thank God that is not us anymore. It's awful, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, Norwich look like they're just about there. Um, they'll, they'll already have enough points for the playoffs and I think three, three four more wins and they'll they'll be guaranteed a, a top two place. I'm watching Brentford with great intrigue because it was all there for Brentford last season, right at the very end. It was all there for them to finish second and it, it just slipped through their fingers. It, 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 I, I don't know if there was a psychological shift down there, but it, it seemed as if for as long as Brentford were chasing West Brom and there was a gap to make up, the, the form was almost flawless. And then right at the point at which it was entirely in their hands and 
promotion was there for the taking. It it slipped away, and and again they were beaten in in the playoff final by a Fulham side who were better on the night, but I don't think were better over the course of the season. And again, they they just despite the goals from from Tony, who, who seems to be scoring in his sleep at the moment, they're not quite getting away, and and you know they're not managing to open up a gap in in the way that Norwich have. And I think that scramble for second place is going to be really tight as things go on. I mean, you mentioned Barnsley there; they are one of the form teams at the minute. Six wins on the bounce. Alex Moore having a, a very very good season down there, which I'm pleased about because I always liked Moore, and I, I didn't feel that he was a complete player. And I think everybody could tell that. Uh, absence of pace in his game was an issue for him but after some difficult years he seems to have settled down again and is and he's coming up as one of the one of the better players in that division this season but I'm with you it feels nice to be thinking about a couple of calm months leading to the the finishing line as opposed to the sort of mad nerve shredding scramble that was just pretty much any year that you were in the hunt for promotion. It's also nice looking back down on the championship now, understanding what the gap is that you've got to make up in order to survive in the Premier League, because it is quite a gulf. Now we've got a proper handle on it, I think. It's a really, really difficult league to get out of. In many ways, the Premier League, to a certain extent anyway, so far has been easier than getting out of the championship, I thought. I don't think the two are connected at all. I mean, this will be the second season that Norwich will have cruised their way out. They obviously won the title in Bielsa's first season and did so by quite a, a wide margin. The way they're going at the moment, I don't see anybody touching them either. So they're going to be promoted, you would think, with games to spare and everything else. But the fact that you're a good side in the Championship doesn't make you a good side in the Premier League. And I think, again, that's what's impressed me so much about Bielsa and impressed me so much about his, his players is that it's been so far beyond just scrambling to make sure that you finish 17th or, or thereabouts. They, they've been extremely comfortable from the start. I mean, there hasn't really felt at any point like a, a period where poor form is endemic or you, you felt like they were kind of losing their grip or, or losing their nerve. It's the, There are defeats coming in amongst the wins. There's no question about that, but that was always going to happen. And I think to match up your tally of wins with your tally of defeats is exactly what you'd want to do as a, a newly promoted side. You know, that that guarantees that you're not going to be in, in significant trouble. So I think in a lot of ways, when you're coming out of the, the championship, you have to be planning with the Premier League in mind and you have to be thinking ahead. It's a little bit like chess where you know what your next move is going to be before or your your second um, but one move um, before you, you play your next move. And with Bielsa, discussed this with a few people at the time, but Leeds played like a Premier League side in the Championship and, and whether you know you want to fate their style or not and whether you feel there's, there's too much credit given to Bielsa or not and, and I know people who don't support the club are, are kind of opinion divided on that. But the way they, they would play with an attacking line of five players, six players in possession, you know, the, the way they would get forward and the way they would go at teams, it was very similar to the way that some of the better teams in the Premier League attack. And that was one of the things that made me feel that they would probably acclimatise pretty well and they would probably win games and put plenty of points on the board because they would get wins. And that's the difference. You know, it's one thing going up and being solid and getting draws here and there, but it doesn't make a lot of progress that. If you can turn over victories in the way that Leeds have, You'll find yourself on 35 points by March and you'll find that you're you're pretty much safe already. So it'll be another big leap for Norwich, I feel. And given that Farke has had one go at this and, and failed pretty miserably, it'll be quite fascinating to see what he does differently and whether or not it's, you know, in, in terms of the results, it's any different for them next time. 
And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Terms or restrictions apply. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Seventh of March, twenty twenty, was the Huddersfield game when Luke Ayling let his hair down and played air guitar. And we've not been back since a full year without football in person. Hopefully, the end is in sight here in the UK, and we're going to be back in the grounds for so long because it's getting to the stage now where I think a lot of us are are really, really missing it. I mean, you've been in there, Phil. Just give us a brief idea of what it's been like reporting in fanless stadiums. I can't pretend that it feels like anything other than turning up to the same game every time. Um, it, it's different opposition. And there is always that slight extra internal buzz about Manchester City and it'll be the same when Liverpool, Manchester United come over. But it's it's very hard to distinguish on the night between Southampton, between Aston Villa, certainly pre-match. I, I think the table's got something to do with that as well. That there's none of the none of the fear and and you know, none of the tension that there was last season and the season before as as Bielsa was going for promotion. That that has been taken out. The, the atmosphere has gone completely. There's nothing to replace it. There were discussions for a very short time about the possibility that clubs, and I know Leeds trialled this, but we're, we're going to play crowd music or crowd noise into the stadium during the game. But certainly the players at Leeds didn't fancy that. It, it would have felt very, very artificial. And it's hard to get away from the sense that you're, you're in the atmosphere of the reserve games, as I remember them, when I first started working at the Yorkshire Evening Post, you know, you would go down on a Tuesday night, there would be 100, 200 people there in, in the stand. That's probably similar now. It's amazing, actually, me included, how many people get paid to go to the football. There's a, a fair old number in there, but it's, you know, it, it's completely, completely empty. I mean, some, something I wanted to ask you two about the Huddersfield game, because I've been thinking about this a lot. Do you think at the time you properly appreciated that game and I don't mean Ailing's goal because obviously it was, it was a stunning finish. And the game itself for a Yorkshire Derby, it was a cruise for Leeds. They were so strong and they were so dominant. And and they you know they outclassed Huddersfield all the way through. But I was looking back at my report after that game, and it was about Tyler Roberts' injury problems. He had a couple of goals at Hull the previous weekend. I'm sort of slightly embarrassed to say that there's not even a single mention of, of COVID in it. And I found myself thinking this week, did I really appreciate coming out of that game that we were about to head into a period like this? You know, even if it hadn't been a year long, a year without crowds, I don't think that I felt the weight of that match in the way that I do do now. I mean, when I speak to Jermaine Beckford about his goal against Bristol Rovers, he always says that when he goes back into Ellen Road, he can still feel that goal. You know, he can still feel the moment and it's kind of still there for him. And I almost feel the same about Ailings because there's been nothing like that since. And bless him, you know, Patrick Bamford also scored in that game against Huddersfield. And if I'm being honest, I can hardly remember it because the only thing that's there is Ailing volleying in, the South Stand going bonkers and, and him 
letting his hair down. And I just wonder whether either of you two, at that point, ever thought to yourselves, do you know what? This might be the last time we're in here for a while. I will say with regards to COVID, I think it's worth contextualising it and saying that it went from sort of zero to 100 in this country, didn't it? I don't think it felt like a huge problem. It was sort of looming there around this game, but I wouldn't have ever thought things were going to shut down for a full year. And I remember reading reports saying a lockdown is coming and we won't get any football this season and maybe not next. I thought, that's daft. We'd seen the pictures on the news from from Italy and from Spain where things had, had got worse around the time of this game. But then I think because there was no sign of a shutdown until it actually happened in this country, like Cheltenham was going on, Atletico Madrid fans were allowed to come to Anfield for a game that pretty much the week it was shut down, I think. It felt like if it shuts down, to, this is my personal opinion anyway, it felt like it was going to shut down for a bit probably, but then we'd we'd have a month off, we'd be back in for the end of the season, we'd see promotion through as normal. I don't think I don't think on the day of that game there was much particularly going on in the way of social distancing. I remember there was there was all the stuff about bumping elbows and stuff, but it was kind of a joke more or less at the time. It was like, oh, meeting up the people you normally do, but it's like, oh, it's elbows today, isn't it? And then obviously the goals going in, everyone was leaping over each yeah. over everyone as normal. But it was there was a bit of that going on. But it was it was more or less being treated as a bit of a novelty for the game. And I yeah I didn't appreciate it enough. I would have taken a lot longer to leave the stadium that day if I'd have known that was going to be it for yeah. for over a year. I'd agree with that. Yeah, yeah, completely. Yeah, I mean just to put it into wider context as well, the lockdown came. It was the third week of March um, last year when that happened. We were supposed to be away that weekend because it was my wife's birthday that weekend, and um, it was only the day before, so the Thursday we got a call from the place we were going saying, we're shutting down, you can't come. And that was the 19th and her birthday was the, the 20th. So that's how quickly it kind of landed on us in the UK. And I think I think at the time though, that Huddersfield game, Leeds, it just felt like it was building momentum, which I think is the reason why what Karen Carney said went down so badly because all of us who were there, it felt like a, it, was a, it was a juggernaut finally heading in the right direction. It was a train building up ahead of steam, wasn't it? Yeah, I, I think it was. And I don't really want to get back into the, the Cam Carney comments, but that period was making everybody feel that promotion was inevitable as much as anybody at Leeds ever thinks anything is inevitable. But it was the five games, five wins, no goals conceded. And just the, the consummate ease of, of that win over Huddersfield, the fact that you had a, a right back in Ailing who who just seemed to be scoring every week and was banging in volleys like that and had done it the day before in training almost almost identical Everything was just working and, and, you know, there was no sign of fatigue. There was no sign of, of burnout at all. I, I remember, you know, bumping elbows with the stewards and like Michael says, it was all a bit of a joke. And in terms of social distancing, the, there was none on the basis that the ground was full. You know, it was a capacity crowd that day. It was rammed. Press box was busy. We were just in our usual places. You, it was, you were taking tentative steps towards trying to be a bit more cautious about it. But you remember that the following week, we had the, the, bizarre events where the Premier League announced on the Thursday that football would be continuing. The government had, had said earlier in the day, you know, that there's going to be going to be restrictions, but top level elite sport can carry on. So the, the Premier League issued a statement, Premier League will be continuing as normal over the weekend. And then within about half an hour, 45 minutes, Arsenal released a statement saying that Arteta had tested positive for COVID. And instantly you knew that the whole game was going to halt. There was going to be no question of that. And, and that was going to change everything. And it still seems bewildering to me that the Premier League didn't know 45 minutes earlier that that was coming from Arsenal and, and that they were blindsided by it so much. But there was an attitude back then of just keep going, keep the blinkers on, keep going, head down, plough on. 
and don't let anything interfere. And, you know, it, it, in the end, it was kind of a case of everybody getting forced into a corner where they where they had no choice. But it, it really did go quickly from the Huddersfield game where you, you weren't quite sure and it wasn't really being spoken about as if as in a sort of imminent shutdown to the point three or four days later where you, you just realised that you were going to be without football for a couple of months at least and without crowds for a good while longer. Yeah, I think that uh, time as well, it was rapidly getting out of control, wasn't it, with Arteta? There was no kind of overall strategy to deal with it. There was no testing regimen, for example, for football, and there was less of a handle on how dangerous COVID itself might be. And obviously, we know we know all the things that have followed since then, and we probably don't need to retread that ground. But it's interesting to have a look at the things that I think we've missed most over the last year, because I'm absolutely champing at the bit now to get back in the stadium. I can't wait till we can we can do it. Um, you know, whether that's at the end of this season or the start of next, it's just something I've missed the, a great deal. So we did throw this open to you on the Twitter account, the new one, at the Phil Hay Show. What have you missed most? You'd think it's quite a simple question on the surface, wouldn't you? Like, I, I can answer that. But actually, can you single out one thing? It's it's not the easiest thing to do because loads of people kind of went, well, just all of it. But some of the responses that we got, I think there's one that made me uh, kind of smile and it framed the reality of what we've experienced. It was from Louis Alexander who just said, leaving the house. You know, you forget how simple it is, a simple pleasure it is just to get out and do stuff when you're not allowed to. You, you've written on here the, the routine and the sensory experience. And, and I actually think that that is, that is what you miss most about football when you're not there. You, you miss the moments, obviously, like Ailing's goal, but you miss it because you're surrounded by people and you miss the, the feeling of getting into the pub before the game. You, you miss the feeling of, of crowding in through the the turnstiles are spilling out with everybody afterwards. You miss the people that you speak to in the stands. And I think that's what you realise because the, the football is still there. You know, fundamentally, the games are still going on as they did before. And some of the standard is, is very high. Leeds have played extremely well all season. And I think that's one of the biggest travesties really is that they've, they've had this season and they've had it without a crowd. People who've waited nigh on two decades to see a Premier League team are actually missing the best Premier League team they could possibly have asked for the, the year after promotion. And that isn't going to come back again. You know, the, you would hope that there'll be crowds in next season and you would hope that it'll be the same sort of standard. And and I suppose there will be some novelty value on the basis that people haven't been there this season, but it's not the same. And it goes back to things like the the street parade that would have been there after promotion in the championship title. You know, the, the, the one-off occasions that you either do or, or you don't, and yeah, it was it was interesting reading through the replies. You know, people talking about like the smell of the the burger van and the music inside the ground and the people that you know, the people you see, the people you don't really know, but you chat on to anyway all around you because you've, you've sat there for ages and and so have they. And you know, it's that kind of sense of belonging. I, I also feel that this year it's been particularly difficult for Leeds because of the losses that they've had. They've lost Norman Hunter. They've lost Jack Charlton, they've lost Trevor Cherry. It was announced last week that Peter Lorimer has gone into a hospice and is is very ill. And and I think sadly at some stage soon is is going to join that list. And I mean these are these are huge icons of the club, some of the biggest and best players that they've that they've ever had. And you know, I was thinking today about the fact that the players who are left, you know, they're Evie boys, none of them were able to go to the, the funerals of Hunter and Charlton and, and Trevor Cherry. When they unveiled the Jack Charlton stand. Most of his family were on video call. You know, his his granddaughter was there, but but they they were else elsewhere because of COVID restrictions and and all. I guess all the things that you take for granted and all the things that you want and you need from football 
emotionally as much as anything else. It's it's all gone and, and it will come back and, and things will change. But I do think that for a lot of people, this must have been a very, very hard year. Oh, definitely. I think, yeah, the, the sensory experience is probably the best way to put it because it's something different for everybody, isn't it? I mean, my route into Ellen Road takes me down Gelder Road and then you turn right into Lowfields Road, the other side of the motorway. So that's when I first see the side of the East standing profile and that's the moment that I get uh, personally. And, and Ralph Bonus's um, moment, it's the walk down through the Lowfields Tunnel and that buzz five minutes before kickoff and uh, the buzz is touched on by uh, by Rich T as well. It's something that only live sport can create and it is, it's the smell of the burger van. I always associate frying onions with Ellen Road whenever I smell it because it's just one of those things that just attacks your nostrils, doesn't it? What about you, Michael? The one that struck me actually was um, Sean PK92 on there saying about the anticipation of the game when you're actually going compared to being at home because it is it is that thing he's saying when you're building up to the game and then when you get in the ground and there's the, the whole atmosphere that builds through the day. Whereas, I mean, we've watched the majority of games together because we're doing the podcast right after it, but quite often I'll like pop to the supermarket on the way here and I'll be... I'll be in the shop 15 minutes before kickoff and then I'll come in here, we'll stick it on, we'll watch it. And it's just not the same, is it? There's there's none of that. There's no sense of occasion, is there? There's no build-up. Your option is to, you can watch some build-up on Sky, but I have no massive desire to watch Andy Hinchcliffe talking about us being tired, potentially, or whatever it, whatever it would be. It, it, that's not, for me, the build-up to a game. The build-up to a game is is the feeling and feeling. Sometimes when you get down to Ellen Road and you think, busy early today, and like you, you, you just get a general feeling of kind of the atmosphere straight away. And, yeah. All of that has, has completely gone, so I, I miss that massively. Oh, you'll be walking towards the ground and you can hear the PA system inside playing stuff and you start, it starts to draw you in, isn't it? Like It lures you in because, I mean, Sean there in his tweet mentioned strings for Yasmin just before the team comes out. Uh, it still makes him feel the same way it did when he was a kid. And I, I love that. I absolutely love that. It's about tapping into that lifetime of memories, isn't it? And not the only person to mention the songs, actually, because Amy Pierman mentions... Uh, that moment when I predict a riot comes blaring out and the excitement and the anticipation that it that it brings with it, including Alioski shaking the tunnel. This sounds ridiculous because Leeds are woeful when it comes to the playoffs, but I always think that Ellen Road is at its best pre-match on those midweek nights before the semi-final leg when it's hot and when it's you can feel the heat coming off the pavement and it's packed and it's tense and, and everything else. It, it's what is not there at the moment and th- there is no no substitute for it and it becomes a bit more like games console football you know you're constantly watching it on the the telly or you feel as if you are because there's nothing else round about you and there's no doubt that the the reason the clubs have been so anxious to get people back in is is for financial reasons as much as anything else you know it is costing everybody and the, the the loss of match day income is is really severe everywhere but it taps into what Bielsa always says that if if you don't have supporters and you don't have a crowd what what is the game what is professional sport without that it's it's not much of an event and you do lose a lot of what it is that that you love about it and you know, I don't know if there'll, there'll be crowds back in towards the end of the season and I kind of feel that it doesn't you know for the sake of one or two games I'm, I'm not sure it, it necessarily matters but I think it'll, it'll be extremely tough for everybody if we get to August September the new season starts and there are still some pretty hefty restrictions in place. It's funny when you were describing the, the feeling of those warm night games towards the end of the season, my mind immediately flicked forward to the end of those games where you're leaving the ground and it's dropped in temperature and your arms are a little bit, you feel a little <laughs> bit chilly and you think you're shell-shocked because of what has just <laughs> gone on inside there. And you're trudging out of Ella Road and you're thinking, oh God. <laughs> and I think, I think I even missed that a little bit. Yeah, no, you do. Well, it's, the, it's the pain. It's the, the feeling game. something, yeah. isn't it? It is the feeling, you're right. And, one other thing I was struck by with these messages is like you're talking there about the sense of occasion that, that comes with a game. It's probably slightly less when you live 
closer because, you know, I'm 20 minutes away from, from Ellen Road, whatever, you know, 25 minutes on a busy day. And it doesn't take over my full day. But I was like, the messages from the Irish contingent that we received, uh, including thank you to Graham, Connor Murray, uh, Ronan Leach, Patch at LUFC, it's all centered around a full, I mean, like a full day out. And sometimes it stretches into a, a full weekend. And these messages all contained a similar theme, which was getting the first bus to Dublin Airport, followed by kind of breakfast pints. And then there's the Leeds part of the experience when you get over here. But it's it's the little details that that kind of made me smile that remind you how important these things are, the, the routine. And like Graham uh, singles out getting up at 5am and he describes it as the booze bus uh, to Dublin Airport. And, and then Ronan saying when they get over to Leeds, it's uh, Mrs. Ather's for breakfast, which is a cafe down near the Corn Exchange. And then the Scarborough taps for pints. And then Connor Murray saying perfectly sums it up saying always the best weekends of the year whenever we head over and, and that's what it's about it's about time we time with your friends and that sense of occasion those days out those weekends out i picked up Eamon who does the does all the design work for the magazine once from the airport and it's that, that flight from dublin is amazing every single person coming through the arrivals is is wearing some leeds gear it's it's a full plane full of leeds fans every single game and it's i think that adds a bit of color to the trips as well like all the norwegians who come and Equally from selling the mag by the tunnel for so many years, you sort of chat to people and there's like a bloke who drives from like the north of Scotland for every single game and stuff like that. And it's, I guess for those people, it's it's an even bigger change because like I'm, I'm similar to you, Dan, I'm 20, 25 minutes away. And truthfully, there were times in the championship I used to resent those 25 minutes. <laughs> I'd be thinking, oh, Christ, I've got to, it's Reading on a Tuesday or something. I'm really not bothered for well, this. I'd be, <laughs> be driving down the ring road in Leeds going, this is quiet. <laughs> get to the traffic lights at the end of Gelded Road and thinking, why isn't there a bigger queue here? God, it's rubbish. Yeah, yeah. yeah you're absolutely right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, we're talking about the people that we've lost there, Phil, and um, one, uh, I think one tweet in particular from from Aidan, who used to sit near me, actually, in the ground some years back. The whole experience of, of going with his dad is something he's going to miss more than anything because he died back in April. So it's going to be really mixed emotions for him when we're allowed back. And you you remember this is this is a thing that's so often passed generation to generation. This this stuff defines our lives and, and our identities. I spoke to Aidan. We're we're doing a feature called um, the empty seat, the missing seat, which is a chat with a supporter from each Premier League club who's lost somebody in the the COVID year that that used to go to the games with them. And and in Aidan's case, it was his, his dad Dave. And um, you know that that piece will be online in, in the next couple of days, I think. And he was just talking about what it'll be like going back. One of his best friends is going to take the season ticket. Is going to sit there instead. He was saying he he would find it really difficult for it to just be empty or to have a stranger in there in, in the short term. But a good point as well that he made was that when he goes back, everybody who, you know, sits around and the people he's got to know over the years will be asking, where's your dad? And, you know, the, the answer will be, well, you know, my dad died before we were, just before we were promoted and, and very soon after the shutdown. The thing that I remember most about Huddersfield, apart from Ealing's goal, is, is the fact that it was the last time I and, and a lot of people in the press box saw Norman Hunter Norman, they obviously died at that in April, the, the April after the, the shutdown began. Um, he, he used to sit up on the gantry and he had this seat along from us right by the, the goal in front of the cop. Just a plain little plastic seat that reminded me of the sort of thing you would you would get at school. And, and he'd sit there on his own. He'd love just to be in his own thoughts and he loved to shout and, and rage as, as the game went on. But he had this brilliant routine which you never really thought about until after he'd gone because it was just what he did and you know the game was always about to kick off so you're always slightly distracted but he'd be down doing corporate work in the West Stand or, or wherever it was that he was he was being employed and 
he'd come charging up the, the steps and he'd walk behind you all and he'd give you give your shoulders a squeeze as he as he went past. I don't know if you've ever watched the film So I Married an Axe Murderer, but right at the start of that, when Mike Myers is about to do his um do his turn on stage, he, he gives everybody sat around him a, a bang on the knee, you know, a little pat on the leg before he goes. And it was a bit like that from from Norman, you know, it's like, right, here we go, game's about to start. And it, it, it was strange really because football seemed to bring the best out of Hunter still and to watch him, you know, to watch him skip in and out of the press box, he's properly nimble, you know, and, and properly full of energy and, it, you know, it wasn't a secret that he had been ill and uh, but it, it was still a shock when when it happened and it's it's kind of, that, I think that seat's still there up there, the gantry isn't used anywhere near as much as it was before because obviously the, the press numbers are restricted but it is kind of odd to think that when it all gets back to normal he won't be there you know and, and he was a you know Norman was somebody whose face was always around Ellen Road it was different with Jack Charlton and different with Trevor Cherry you didn't see so much of them for their own own reasons but with Norman he was always at the game you know you, you always saw him piling up the steps just before kickoff and it's it's that sort of thing that that stays with you and it's that sort of thing that remember that reminds you what what really has gone on these past 12 months it does feel like we've got a lot of tears to shed when we do get back in there, but also a lot of love to give as well to to this promotion side. And it's also going to be a chance to experience Ellen Road as it looks now, because it's not going to stay this way forever, because we kind of need to say goodbye like to the old West Stand before the redevelopment starts. There's there's an element of that, because the landscape is going to start to, uh, to change around us. But it, I think it's very true, isn't it? Absence does make the heart grow fonder. It's something that we're all absolutely itching to get back and experience properly. As well, you, you've got to plug into Bielsa Ball again, You've got to make the most of this because you you know that it will end at some point and on the basis that everything does. No regime is, is perfect forever. No regime holds together forever. Someday it will be somebody else. Someday it will be different players. It will be a team and a squad who play in a, a very, very different way. I was having this conversation with somebody a little while back who was saying we kind of got so used to a team who are as on the front foot as a team could possibly be. You look around Europe, it's very hard to find any team at any level who attack more than Leeds try to under Bielsa, certainly in his first season when it just felt all out all the time. And there are plenty of coaches who prefer to play with a counter-attacking style or slightly deeper setup who don't want to be quite as aggressive or as ambitious on the ball. And it might be that at some point further down the line, either the next coach after Bielsa or the coach that follows him moves more towards that style. And, and as a crowd at Ellen Road, media and everybody else who watches the team we we all have to get used to or acclimatised to a, a side that don't look anything like Bielsa's but you don't want to wish the time away and, and you don't want to lose this style because it is so good and it is so engaging and as I was saying earlier that I think has been one of the biggest disappointments of the past year and, and particularly the past six months is that you've had this team doing what they're doing in the Premier League and, and they don't have they, they're appreciated don't get me wrong, I, I don't mean that, but they don't have the levels of appreciation around them on the day and, and in the ground that, that they should have. And, and I don't doubt that the players feel that they've been a little bit robbed in that sense as well. MJ at Ellen underscore Toad pointed this out, actually saying uh, that it's not the same watching Bielsa Ball on TV. You have to watch the whole pitch to truly appreciate our style. And I completely buy into that because it makes me anxious sometimes when stuff's unfolding on the telly and you don't quite know where all the players are positionally. It's got kind of the analogy I've, I've come up with is it's like it's a little bit like you're looking at the Mona Lisa but like a postcard version of it or a version of a, a photo on your phone rather than seeing the real thing in the museum you know like it's a masterpiece that you want to see with your eyes I think particularly with Bielsa's style what you miss is you see that run from deep in the stadium you can see that Stuart Dallas has set off and he's going to be in the box in about five seconds time but he's not quite in the TV 
picture just yet. And the same with people like Harrison, who always seem to be there bursting into the box. And it's that anticipation. I mean, also on, on TV, you, they're quite often showing a replay of a goal kick or something <laughs> when, we, when we're just putting the ball in the net, which is quite annoying. Um, but yeah, that seeing it all unfold and the anticipation of that is great. It's less like a postcard of the Mona Lisa than it is somebody holding a, a camera phone in front of it, but only ever showing you a portion of it and moving <laughs> it around. So you see a little portion from time to time. I find that sort of tactical pieces, tactical overviews are, are far more difficult to do when you're watching on the television. And, you know, I've, I've watched a lot of the away games this season from home on, on Sky and, and BT because we, we, didn't have enough or we don't get enough um, press passes for, for all of our writers to, to go to every game. And it's not the same. And I think football in general has become far more alive to tactics and team structure and positioning and shape and everything else. But I think we at Leeds have as well because of Bielsa, because it's so fundamental to what he, he does. If you've got a real interest in him as a coach and in the way his team are growing, you have to take an interest in the tactics and you have to take an interest in the, the methods and the, the philosophy behind what they do and, and how they play. And, and I totally agree with you and I agree with um, with Mr. Ellen Toad as well. If you can see the whole pitch, it's far more obvious and it's far more evident and it's easier to, to draw those conclusions. What you do find on television is that you get in a, a at any one time a fairly small snapshot of the pitch itself and, and what's going on in the game and what I will say is it's nice that we own the football equivalent of the Mona Lisa as you've probably heard by now we've teamed up with BetMGM this season we'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet use bonus code The Athletic, and you'll get a one year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM here's how it works download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code The Athletic. make your first deposit of at least $10 Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Coming up then, we've got Match Week 27 against West Ham Monday night in London and they are pushing for a Champions League spot currently sitting in fourth position, one of the surprises of the season actually. We've got to that point of the season now where we're just kind of... uh, well, are we almost killing time to the end or is there still still something at stake? It's like a big pre-season. Get, just getting ready for next year. Having a look at players, trying out a few things. I mean, it'd be nice to win some, wouldn't it? Just to pass the time. It'd be nice to win in London. I mean, I know the London hoodoo is not really a thing. You know, it's just kind of a, a label we've attached to our inability to win uh, away games in London. It'd be nice to get rid of that one though, wouldn't it? And just say, right, that we can consign that to history. Just get three points on the board. It's doable against West Ham. I think they're very good this season. They're a very effective unit, but are we capable of beating them? Well, how everybody laughed when David Moyes said winning games is is what I do. And I, I have to be honest, I, I wasn't totally convinced by his appointment. I, I wasn't sure it would be anything more than a holding appointment. I also didn't see, you know, going back 12, 18 months, 
I didn't see much in West Ham's future apart from constant relegation battles and, and constant fights between their board and, and their fan base. But they're starting to look like they have a really serious chance of, of the top four. And I mean, you could say that sounds obvious on the basis that they're in it at the moment. But we're starting to get down to the, the finishing straight now. And and I wouldn't have said that the form behind them, Chelsea or Liverpool or Everton or Spurs, any, any of those teams, is necessarily any better than theirs and is necessarily any more likely to to hold up. I, I suspect they might just get pipped. I, I think there's a, a good chance that, that Chelsea will get themselves in there on the Tuchel and, and will stay there. But they've been a, a huge surprise. And it, it just seems very functional and, and very effective at West Ham. It, it feels as if Moyes has got around to the point now where he's got the players in each position that he wants. He's got proper understanding across the squad of how he plays and and what he wants to do. And I think for the first time in a long time, you've got a West Ham team with confidence, a West Ham team with a bit of belief. Maybe they have been a beneficiary of the fact that the grounds have been empty for a while because that was certainly a problem for them over a quite sustained period. Um, But this will be an an extremely difficult game. And while I'm not saying Leeds can't win down there, I, I do feel that out of the London trips coming up, Fulham feels like the one that's far more likely to end this record in London. Do you think Moyes has earned himself a chance at a bigger club, maybe? If anyone was looking to, uh, maybe maybe Manchester United or something long, over the summer. Get a long contract going on, mm. yeah. Are you, are you thinking if Bielsa leaves that that would be your... No, 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 no. Choice? <laughs> Bielsa's going nowhere. Um, do you know what? I, I've got genuinely no idea how this game's going to go. On the Square Ball podcast, I've brazenly predicted that Leeds will win just because there's a lot of that going on this season. Like, you know, Leicester beat us, we beat Leicester, so on and so forth. Aston Villa. Reverse fixtures seem to be going the other way. So that's the... the wholly unscientific basis for my prediction but I genuinely like you know being fair about it I have no idea what's going to happen on Monday I think we could win it but I also think we could lose it Phil having just tipped him as having a chance of the Champions League gives me a bit of confidence I have to say yeah yeah they'll finish 12th now (laughs) Um, what about you then how's it going to go I feel like we'll probably lose this one it just it feels like they'll get a lead and keep it because they're quite um, they're quite an efficient and David Moisey team what if we get a lead Oh, that gives us a chance. I, th- I think I do think we 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 would benefit from the game being relatively open. Although they have played some decent stuff in fairness of West Ham this year, I think it'd be unfair to categorise them as a complete team of spoilers. They have actually played some relatively entertaining stuff at times. They've got some dangerous players in the team: uh, Lingard, Antonio, and and Bowen. You know, there are players who who can hurt you there. Bielsa earlier was picking out the the midfield pair of of Rice and and Suchek, who who had good games at Ellen Road, and I think. It, it was extremely tight, that game, and, and there wasn't a huge amount in it. But I came away from the game at Ellen Road feeling like it was West Ham's night and, and that they were they were just about worth the win that they've got. I, I think for Leeds, it'll be, you know, the, the basics will be important. So, for example, set pieces, defence set pieces far better in this game than they did in the, the original game against West Ham because those that was where the goals came from. That was, you know, where the, where the, the trouble lay. But I think as well a bit more dominance and a bit more control. It, it would be a massive shot in the arm if Phillips was available for this. I think likewise, if you could get Rodrigo back in the team, although both of them have been missing for, for quite a little while now and, and I don't know exactly what the match fitness would be like. Phillips tends to be very naturally fit anyway, so I wouldn't have thought that would be an issue. But they also wouldn't commit to that earlier today. He was saying, I still need to see how the next few days go and it wasn't really clear whether that meant that the two of them had a serious chance and just needed to train well over the weekend or whether actually they're still quite a distance away and, and there's no real real chance whatsoever. But I think if Phillips plays, this is a different game to a game where Phillips doesn't. 
you think we've been a little bit more cautious with them coming back because we've had a, a slight luxury of a, a decent gap to the bottom three? Yeah, well, certainly Bielsa said that about Phillips because he'd given the impression initially that Phillips might be back without missing a game and, and then, you know, one game's become two, two's become three and it's it's gone on a little while. And when he, he last spoke in depth about the injury, he was saying it was a tear in Phillips' calf and, and there was just that slight risk of it worsening. And I think at this stage, you know, if it was to worsen if, and if he was to to aggravate it, then he'd be losing a lot of the season that's left. We're getting quite close to, to the end of it now. Uh, so they are being cautious. They are being careful. I'll be honest, I, I don't really get the impression that Bielsa is the sort of person that generally risks players at all, really. I mean, it surprised me when he was talking about um, Matthias Cleek playing with a hip problem because that just is, has never really been the done thing under Bielsa. And that maybe just highlighted how thin on the ground they were in midfield after a, a few injuries. Um, but in the same way as you know, people have been talking to me on Twitter and other places about experimenting now, you know, now that Leeds are safe, do you play some more of the academy players? Do you mix things up a little bit more? Do you take a closer look at players who you, you're maybe not sure about? Again, I don't see a lot of that in Bielsa outside of cup competitions. When it comes to league games, it does tend to be a pretty consistent 11. I think he... I think he feels the urge to win games full stop. I think he also wants to avoid any accusation that he's fielding a weak inside and is, is helping somebody who might benefit from that um, elsewhere in, in the division. So I reckon it will be pretty standard and pretty steady through to, to the end of the season. But it's a fair question to ask. You know, if, if Leeds were down in the bottom three or very close to the bottom three, would they be quite as relaxed about this? Would they be taking their time? I think on the basis of how Bielsa has always worked, I suspect they probably would. Does Harrison come back in for Costa, in your opinion, or does Costa stay in the team? I would be tempted to play Harrison, I think, if it feels like he's refreshed and if it feels like he's recharged his batteries a little bit. Harrison in form with his running and his engine, I think, could be very, very useful against West Ham. It's hard to judge Costa because Leeds didn't play especially well against Villa and it wasn't a game in which he was likely to shine. But I, I just feel that at the moment, if you're picking your two best white players, in general, it's going to be Rafinha on the right and it's going to be Harrison on the left-hand side. I, I think personally I would play him, but I honestly don't know what Bielsa will do. I'd have him back in as well, just for the, the defensive work that he does. Costa wasn't particularly tested defensively against Villa either because they, they weren't particu- that interested in going forward, whereas I think against, um, against West Ham we'll have much more of an issue there. What does West Ham's form this season tell us about the Premier League as a whole, you think? I think it, it tells us that it's been a difficult season for a lot of clubs. And I, I think when we look back at it, you'll look at the various anomalies there, like Liverpool on 43 points after 26 games. Um, you'll look at the, the way that Spurs and Everton have found it a little bit difficult to get going. The fact that Chelsea are a long, long way behind Manchester City and, and not really at the moment in touch with Manchester United. And, and to be honest as well, the fact that Manchester United are, are up in second, because I don't think by any stretch that the second best team in the Premier League when when everybody is in top form. But I think it has been a year which has put a lot of pressure on certain managers and, and certain clubs. And I, I think it's been a good a good opportunity for teams to surprise people in the way that West Ham have and in the way that Leeds have as well, to, to be perfectly fair. But at the same time, I, I think West Ham have played well for quite a sustained period under David Moyes. I thought they were good at Manchester City recently. I thought they went there and, and played well which kind of underlines the point I was making previously about the the fact that there does seem to be a good amount of confidence there and and they do seem pretty certain 
about what they are as a team and, and how they're supposed to supposed to be playing. I, I feel like they're very much on merit this season. I just wonder whether in a normal season they would actually be as competitive as this. Finally on West Ham then, one to watch Phil and a prediction from you if we could. Prediction. I, I'm with Michael really. I think this will be a hard game and I wouldn't be surprised if Leeds got something from it, but I think my head says home win. The the one to watch is going to be set pieces again. I mean, it was... It was Suchek getting above Dallas for the, the first goal. It was it was Cooper caught out just by half a yard for the second goal, both from set pieces, both from deliveries straight into the box. I, I personally feel that Leeds have been dealing with those better recently. I do think there's been an improvement. I do think they're slightly less susceptible, but they'll do themselves a big favour down there if they, they avoid giving West Ham a leg up. And we're not far off the next um, international break now. Then we've got the uh, the Chelsea game coming up a week on from uh, from West Ham and then Fulham and then a break, but the squads are going to be announced soon. Will we see any uh, call-ups for any Leeds players beyond the regular ones? Well, this is going to be interesting because there's a, an argument going on at the moment about whether or not Premier League clubs are going to release the players, whether they feel like they should. There have been changes to quarantine rules which are potentially going to cause havoc for players who do go abroad, depending on where they go. It might lead to some fairly lengthy quarantining periods of, of about 10 days, which is obviously not ideal for any club at this point in the season, not really ideal for any club ever. We asked Bielsa about it and he said that, you know, on the one hand, he, he would never tell a player to refuse a call-up and he would never suggest that they did. But on the other, he clearly feels that the governing bodies and this, the national associations at the moment are, are not grasping the nettle here and, and are not taking enough responsibility for providing clear guidance about what should happen. I mean, Bielsa's view, and and I agree with this, was that it shouldn't be left in the hands of the clubs because, firstly, it's it's difficult and it's difficult and awkward issue with players. If 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 you find yourself saying to players, "We'd rather you didn't travel, but your players want to go," it you know it creates friction there. I think you also have potentially a scenario where. Some clubs benefit because they don't send players away. Other clubs are compromised because they do. And, and there isn't a consistent picture right across the leagues. I think he's right. I think from the, the very highest level or certainly a national governing body level like the BFA, this is going to have to be a kind of blanket decision. There's going to have to be proper guidance given about what clubs should do or or what they shouldn't do as opposed to just being left up in the air. There will be call-ups for Leeds. I mean, the, the really interesting one is going to be Bamford for England. Um, Southgate has been very much on his trail at the moment. He was at the Villa game. He was at the Wolves game. He was down at Leicester um, as well where Bamford had a goal and, and two assists. I think irrespective of the fact that Bamford didn't have a great game against Villa and, and also the fact that Leeds lost to Wolves at, at Molyneux, I think he will be right in the running and I do wonder whether this might just be his time this window coming up. Be interesting, wouldn't it, if Bamford did get the first call up but there's this pressure on players not to go. You wouldn't fancy being in that situation, would you? It's a bit of a dilemma. The whole thing just feels unnecessary, to be honest. The, playing these games, I just feel like, can't they think of some other way of doing this, given we're still at this sensitive period of, of lockdown and not allowing people to travel? It just feels like it's it's unnecessary. There is surely somewhere else these games can be played. This, this all you know, feeds back to the, the fact that nobody is really compromising. Nobody in the game is willing to put their own interests to one side to say, OK, we'll... We'll trim down the international schedule to make it easier for clubs. You know, the, in the same way as you've got Champions League ties taking place in in two stadiums which belong to neither of the clubs involved. You know, nobody can agree to just play over ninety minutes. It's almost as if the competition has to play out in in the way that it would have done normally. Even though 
you've got all these complications and all these restrictions that mean that you cannot just have the, the games as they would have been played normally. And it's it's much the same with, with international football. But I mean, domestically, you can't say it's been any better. They've pushed through with the FA Cup. They, they ran a load of League Cup fixtures into the first month of the season to make sure that that, that was played. So it's pretty much everybody clinging on to, to what they've got. And the impact of that is that you do have these points at which people start banging heads and, and you know, competing inf- interests start to to collide. But I, I agreed with something that Guardiola said earlier this week. You know, the, the reason why the Premier League has been pretty immune to COVID over the past month or so, month and a half, is because you don't have people travelling and because the players are pretty much staying in one place and going to the games domestically and or you know, European fixtures, but in very, very tight bubbles. I think that there is a definite risk that once you start branching out into international football and, and sending people all over the world, that problems will develop again. Thank you for that, Phil. Thank you, Michael. That wraps up the Phil Hay Show for this week. Do get in touch with us on Twitter now. The new Twitter account is at the Phil Hay Show and get yourself a subscription to The Athletic right now for that special price of three ninety nine a month for six months. 40% off the full price of a subscription. You get all the analysis and features, all the stuff Phil's been talking about at theathletic.com forward slash Leeds pod, theathletic.com forward slash Leeds pod. We'll speak to you next time. The Phil Hay Show.